Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19, we're just carrying on in our studies in Luke. Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save save the lost. Then that was lost. I was going to to read uh, from uh, what was familiar. But... We know God will bless the reading of his word. On one occasion, someone came to Spurgeon and said, I just saw one of your converts lying drunk in the street after a a brawl uh, and uh, lots of bad language. Uh, He fell down drunk in the gutter. To which Spurgeon replied, I'm glad you said you saw one of my converts because he certainly wasn't one of the Lord's. And although it's possible for Christians to fall into sin, Spurgeon was making a very simple point that conversion leads to change, that the evidence of a new life is a changed life. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, we see that clearly illustrated in the life of Zacchaeus. The Lord not only saves him, but changes him. The old has gone and the new has come. And so this morning we want to look at this man and see the change, something of the change he experienced. And I want you to notice three things. The man that he was, the man that he met, and the man that he became. So first of all then, the the man that he was in verses 1 and 2. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief a tax collector and was rich. Remember from our last study that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, his last Passover, and ultimately to die. He was on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and like most pilgrims, he had to pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. On approaching Jericho, he was met with uh, the blind man, who we know to be Bartimaeus, um, who was not only blind, but miserably poor. Jesus heals him, uh, miraculously restoring his sight. The miracle only serves to generate interest, and by the time that uh, Jesus arrives in Jericho, enters Jericho, um, there's uh, this crowd uh, of people wanting to catch a glimpse of him. And one of those was this man called Zacchaeus. Now, I noticed three things about Zacchaeus. First of all, he was a wealthy man. He was a chief tax collector and rich, we're told in verse 2. Zacchaeus was a man of money, a man of means. 
Now, that's significant because this is the last recorded encounter of Jesus before he uh, arrives in Jerusalem. And we're told that he meets somebody who is fabulously wealthy. Now, you remember back in chapter 18, Jesus met somebody who was wealthy and turned away from Jesus because he had great wealth. And Jesus said how difficult it is for the rich to enter the, the kingdom of God. Indeed, he says it's easier for a, a camel to pass through than the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But this account with Zacchaeus tells us, although it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, it's not impossible. In fact, back in Luke 18, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for anyone to be saved, never mind a rich man, but particularly a rich man, because they put their riches before God, they put the temporal before the eternal, they put the material before the spiritual. But that rich man can be saved if a miracle occurs, a camel can pass through the eye of a needle miraculously. So here we see a wealthy man transformed by the power of the gospel. I think that's significant. So he was a wealthy man. Secondly, he was a sinful man. Again, in verse 2, we're told that he was a tax collector. And not simply that he was a tax collector, but that he was a chief tax collector. Now, tax collectors, ordinary tax collectors, were totally despised by the general Jewish population. They were considered to be the lowest of the low. Not only did they uh, collaborate with the Romans, the occupying force, but they, through dishonesty and overcharging, um, exploited their fellow countrymen. The Romans auctioned the position off of tax collector to the person that took the lowest wage, and then they would turn a blind eye when that tax collector engaged in repetitive charging or overcharging. And so in Scripture, you find tax collectors coupled together with the worst people in society, tax collectors and sinners, pagans and tax collectors, tax collectors and harlots. If you think of some provincial politician in occupied France making himself rich by licking the boots of the Nazis, you'll get an idea of what people thought of tax collectors in the first century. They didn't just snub them. They crossed the road to avoid them. They shouted out curses upon them. And if they could have got away with it, they would have lynched them because they betrayed the people of God into the hands of the enemies of God. So tax collectors were despised. But this man wasn't simply a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was in charge of a number of tax collectors. And probably in some kind of pyramid scheme, he skimmed off some of those under him, some of their profits, in order to make himself more rich. Now, there were three tax centers uh, in Judea and in Galilee, Jericho, Jerusalem, and Caesarea Philippi. And since Jericho was... Um, uh, located uh, at uh, the River Jordan at a main road crossing from the east to the west. It was particularly lucrative to be a tax collector there, never mind to be a chief tax collector. So Zacchaeus was rich through exploitation and extortion, through backhanders and bribes, through corruption and dishonesty. He made a living out of sin. He was a sinful man. 
So Zacchaeus was a a, a wealthy man. He was a a sinful man. And thirdly, he was a curious man. You see that in verses 3 and 4. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. We are told that he wanted to see Jesus. Now, why did he want to see Jesus? Had he heard about Bartimaeus? We don't know. Had he heard that Levi or Matthew, uh, a former tax collector, had been converted and was now a disciple? We, We don't know. Had he heard about the miracles, the ministry of Jesus, and the fact that people were speculating that he was the Messiah? We don't know. Was he dissatisfied with his life and the emptiness that, uh, of his life and the fact that riches couldn't buy happiness? We don't know. All we know and all we're told is that he wanted to see Jesus. He, he may have just been curious. He wanted to see what all the fuss was about. We know, uh, we're told in verse 3, that he was seeking to see Jesus, but could not on account that he was small in, in stature. stature. If we were to make a, a film of um, Zacchaeus' life, I think Danny DeVito would be the one that would play the role, short, shifty, and full of swagger. He probably felt it was too dangerous to push his way through to the front of the crowd to see Jesus because he might get an elbow in his ribs or somebody might kick his feet out from under him or even worse, put in a knife in his back. So what he does is he, he runs down the road ahead of the, 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 the crowds. He climbs a tree and he waits for Jesus uh, to arrive. Now, two things are unusual about that. First of all, grown men don't run. And secondly, grown men don't climb trees. You see children running about all the time and you think nothing about it. But if you see a man running apart from jogging, you're kind of thinking to yourself, that's, that's a bit odd. You sit up and take notice. And the same is true of climbing trees. You see children, or maybe not so much anymore, but when I was young, you saw children climbing trees uh, all the time. But you would think if a grown man was climbing a tree, it kind of lost the plot. Now, that's true in our culture, but it was even more true in the ancient Near East. Any exertion that made a man break a sweat was considered to be beneath his dignity. You didn't run in the street, and you certainly didn't climb trees. But Zacchaeus does both. His curiosity drove him to take drastic action. He probably thought that he had nothing to lose. He already was the object of ridicule and scorn. But that curiosity brought him into contact with Jesus. John Calvin says his curiosity was a preparation for faith. His curiosity brought him to Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus, and he did see Jesus, but he got more than he bargained for because he was saved by Jesus. Sometimes God can use impure motives to bring us to Christ. I remember when I was 14, sitting beside a friend in school, and he invited me to Rosemary Park Baptist Church uh, to the Youth Fellowship. And the question that I asked him was not the theology. In fact, I couldn't care less about theology because I thought the Baptists were a bit like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, some kind of cult. didn't know anything about them. I asked him, well, what are the girls like? And he said to me, I don't know if he should have said this, but he said, they're really good. And I said, I'll go. And uh, I got more than I bargained for, for because I not only met Gail, but I 
I uh, was converted and saved. And sometimes God can use impure motives in order to bring us to himself. J.C. Ryle says that salvation often turns on little and insignificant things. So this man was a wealthy man, a sinful man, a curious man. He wanted to see Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice this uh, this morning is the, the man that he met. It's almost a humorous picture. This wee man sitting in a tree, hidden from view by the leaves and branches. Um, and the fact that he was above eye level made it, uh, made it all the more difficult for anyone to see him. But Jesus stops, he looks up, he calls him down, and he invites himself to his house. People were shocked and surprised. Not simply because this wealthy tax collector was perched in a tree, but they were shocked because Jesus went to his house for hospitality. You see that in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Um, He has gone in uh, to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, our Lord's answer to that grumbling and that uh, objection is one of the most profound uh, explanations of the ministry of Jesus in all of the New Testament. It's recorded for us there in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus tells us three things uh, through this encounter with Zacchaeus and this statement about himself, his identity, first of all. Here Jesus uh, calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this title, Son of Man, was the preferred title of Jesus. That's how he referred to himself. Now we, are traditionally at least, always associate the Son of Man, that title, with his humanity, and the Son of God with his deity. And to be sure, there's an element of truth in that. Because you remember Psalm 8, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. But in the Old Testament, the son of man was more than just a, a human, uh, a descendant of Adam. If you, if you turn back just to Daniel chapter 7, I, I just want you to, to notice this. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. So Daniel comes, just in case you have difficulty locating it, it comes after Ezekiel and before Jonah. So you have Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Okay, Daniel chapter 7 and uh, and verse 13. This is a remarkable passage. Daniel 7 and verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Do you see that? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, that's not the usual word for serve. It's an Aramaic word, and it means to revere. It's used of, 
of priests serving at the altar. It's not just serving as in like a servant. It's serving for a religious purpose. And that's why the NIV translates that, that all nations uh, uh, will worship him. Worship him. And here in the Old Testament, we have this figure, this strange figure, the Son of Man who is worshipped as God. So Jesus isn't claiming simply, um, when he claims to be the Son of Man, simply that he is um, human. He's claiming that he is a man who is God, who is worthy of worship, that he is God of very God, that he is God in flesh. So God himself came into our world to seek and to save them that were lost. And you see that in the Lord's dealings with Zacchaeus. How did the Lord know that Zacchaeus was in the tree? He's hidden by the leaves. He was above eye level. And yet he knew he was there. How did he know his name? Zacchaeus, come down. I wanted to go to your house uh, for tea. The only explanation is that see, uh, God knew Zacchaeus, that Jesus knew Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus knew him, that Jesus knew more about Zacchaeus than Zacchaeus knew about Jesus, that he was the great and the glorious Son of Man, that this divine character in the Old Testament who was worshipped by all nations. He was God of very God. His identity, the Son of Man, his ministry. Again, look at verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The ministry of Jesus, by his own definition, was a search and rescue mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. And again, you see that so wonderfully illustrated in our Lord's encounter with Zacchaeus. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, you notice that? I must stay at your house today. There, here is a divine must. Jesus did not say, I, I want to stay at your house. He doesn't say, could I stay at your house? He says, I must stay at your house. In the purpose and plan of God, Jesus sought out and saved this man. He wanted to see Jesus, but the truth of the matter is that Jesus wanted to see him. Jesus had business to do with Zacchaeus. He had to talk to him. He had to point out the way of salvation to him. I must, I must stay at your house, he says today. He thought he was seeking Jesus, but all the time... Jesus was seeking him. There's a lovely prayer recorded for us from Augustine in the 5th century. And Augustine was converted late in life at the age of 32. And uh, he says, Late have I sought thee, O thou eternal truth and godness. Sorry. Late have I sought thee, O thou eternal truth and goodness. But thou didst seek me when I sought thee not. Thou didst love me when I loved thee not. Thou didst take me by the hand and call me when I thought of thee not. And that's true of every Christian. 
that, that you not only sought after Jesus, but Jesus was seeking after you. In fact, the very reason that you began to seek after Jesus was because he was already seeking after you. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. So in verse 10, we see something of the identity of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. He came to seek and to save the lost. And then uh, thirdly, uh, we see the priority of Jesus. Notice verse 10 again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came in search of those who are lost. His priority was the lost. Now, in the eyes of everyone, Zacchaeus was a lost cause, a lost case. We have already established that. He was not only a sinner, but he was a great sinner. He had made himself rich through exploiting and, uh, the poor and dishonesty. And yet Jesus sees him, calls him, and saves him. Zacchaeus was a lost cause, but Jesus specializes in lost causes. And that gives us great hope, doesn't it? J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, writes of a time during a plague, and we ought to be thankful that we live uh, not only in times of COVID-19, but in times of COVID-19 where we have the health care that we have. Because if anybody was thought to be incurable, they just put them out of hospital, they sent them home. And um, J.C. Ryle says, hospitals discharge people as incurable, but there are no incurable cases with the gospel. Jesus can reach into the lives of those who are profoundly and utterly lost. He can convert them and he can change them in a moment. There's nobody that is beyond the reach of the gospel. One of the most moving books I've ever read is called The Cross and the Swastika, which tells the story of Henry Grieke. And Henry Grieke was a pastor. He was a good pastor. He was a faithful pastor. He was an evangelical pastor, but he had a terrible congregation, horrible congregation. He was the pastor to one of the worst groups that ever lived, the defendants at the Nuremberg trials. My church members can be difficult to pastor, but can you imagine pastoring people who were responsible for the death of millions under the Nazi regime? Now, Greggy had every reason to be bitter. He had been one of the first to enter the Dracker concentration camp. And after placing his hand against a wall, he realized it was still wet with human blood. For 15 months, he was chaplain at a military hospital in England um, that looked after the people who were wounded through the D-Day landings. His two sons were severely injured in the Battle of the Bulge. He had suffered at the hands of these men who now he was called to minister to. And for the next year, he ministered to those men and listen, he saw nine of them converted. Nine of them converted. Nine of them brought the faith. Wicked men. Depraved men. Lost men. Is that possible? Is it possible that such wicked men can be saved out of their depravity? Well, Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost. Now, not everyone can accept that. Not everyone believes that the grace of God can go so far or the mercy of God can reach so, so deep. But God in Christ came to seek and to save the lost. 
People in Zacchaeus' day believed that he was beyond the reach of salvation. We're told that they grumbled against Jesus for associating with such a man. They looked down their snooty, self-righteous noses. And the truth of the matter is that they were lost, as lost as him. In fact, they were more lost than him. Because they didn't even recognize and see their lostness. You see, Jesus saves those who realize their loss. They appreciate their true condition. They realize that their sin is offensive to God. That there's no league cable of sin with Jesus. He who said, do not murder, also said, honor your father and mother. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not give false testimony. And the Ten Commandments are not like a bar of chocolate that you can break two pieces off and you still have eight pieces left. They're like a vase or a um, a, a cut crystal bowl that when it breaks, it smashes into smithereens. If Jesus had to die to forgive any sin, then every sin is serious to God. And it's only when we realize that we're lost that we can be saved. Do you see your sin? Do you feel your sin? Do you sense your sin? Do you appreciate your sin? Good. Because you're the type of person that Jesus came to seek and to save. The man that he was, a wealthy man, a sinful man, a a curious man, the man that he met, the Son of Man came to seek and to save uh, the lost The identity of Jesus. He was the Son of Man. The ministry of Jesus. He came to seek and to save. And the priority of Jesus, the lost. The last thing I want you to notice is the man that he became. Zacchaeus came down from his perch in response to the call of Jesus. And welcomed Jesus into his house. Now what happened in the house and the conversation that was held between Jesus and Zacchaeus were not told anything about. But we do know the outcome of that conversation. Two things happened. Zacchaeus was saved and Zacchaeus was changed. We know that he was saved because of what what Jesus said to him. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Something happened at his house. Zacchaeus experienced the salvation of God. He was saved. He was saved and rescued from his sin. Sin has consequences. Sin provokes the anger of God. God is angry with us and we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered from that anger. We deserve the wrath of God, but He gives us, in Christ, salvation. And that's what we're told happened. That salvation came to his house, and Jesus says to the onlookers, he also is a son of Abraham. He was a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, in that he was a Jew, but he became a true son of Abraham. You remember in the Old Testament, Abraham, we're told, believed God and it was credited to him as righteous, that he was uh, accounted as righteous in the sight of God because of his faith. He believed and he experienced the salvation of God. And Zacchaeus believed and experienced the salvation of God. That's, That's the crucial question. Do you believe? Do you believe? 
You need to be saved. You should be saved. You must be saved. But salvation comes to those who believe. Like Zacchaeus. And like Abraham. You must believe. Well, what does it mean to believe? Well, the Reformers made three distinctions about faith that you, you, you need to know about God. You need to intellectually know about Him. You need to know about Christ. You need to know that Christ came into the world and died upon the cross in order to purchase our salvation. You need to know that. You, you need, secondly, to assent to that. You need to say, yes, that's true, that there's a God in heaven who is holy and pure, and that he sent his son into the world to die on that cross to purchase uh, my salvation. You need to assent to that. But, but not only do you need to know it, not only do you need to assent to it, and here's the crucial thing, you need to trust in it. You need to rest in it. You need to believe that for yourself and appropriate that to yourself. That's what it means to believe. I don't think I'm talking to any raw pagans this morning that know nothing about God and the gospel. You know. And I would say the vast majority of people here listening to me believe it. You believe those, those truths. But are you resting and depending on those truths? So Zacchaeus, he was saved. And secondly, he was changed. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone uh, of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he he does two things. He gives 50% of all that he had accumulated, the fortune that he had gathered up, he gives it away. And out of the remaining 50%, he pays back four times what he had defrauded from anyone. Now, under the Old Testament, if anyone was guilty of corruption or um, defrauding, you had to pay back what you had taken and add 20% on. But Zacchaeus adds 300% on. He is a changed man. He is a new man. Instead of a passion to get, He's filled with a passion to give. Instead of a hatred for his fellow country people, he is filled with a, a, a love for the Lord. When, when, when God saves you, he changes you. J.C. Ryle says, converted sinners give evidence of conversion. If there is no change, there is no conversion. If there is a change, there is evidence of conversion. When Augustine, you remember he was converted when he was 32, was a young man, he used to pray, O Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Make me pure, but not yet. But you see, when you're converted, there's a change. There's a longing after holiness. There's a desire for holiness. There's a desire for Christ-likeness. You want to change. I love the story of in the 1920s of the man who was preaching in the open air in the streets of New York, and a, a communist uh, began to heckle him. And uh, he pointed at a man, a beggar, lying in the street, a drunkard, and he says, what, what could Christianity do for that man? He said, uh, communism would put a new coat on that man. To which the street preacher replied, Christianity would put a new man in that coat. 
put a new man in that coat. He changes you. I remember, you know, in, in Balamoney, uh, in the first church, there were two uh, teenagers, late teens, and they were totally disinterested in anything I had to say. You know, you could, you could look down and their, their eyes would glaze over. You know, they, they just weren't engaged at all in the sermon. And then suddenly I noticed they, they began to look. They began to concentrate. They began to take notes. And I, I said to their dad, have the girls said anything to you? And he, he said, no, but, but there's a change. There's a change in their attitude. And what had happened was that they'd been converted. And they'd been brought to, to faith in Christ. And they hadn't yet told anybody, but people could see that change. And God works a work of grace in a person's life. It is evidenced in change. Imagine if Zacchaeus had just uh, gone about as normal, engaged in his usual business, uh, and continued to defraud and exhort people, uh, extort people uh, from their money. Uh, you would say, well, what difference had Christ made in his life? There's, there's no evidence in his life whatsoever that he ever met a man called Jesus. But because he had changed, the salvation that he professed was evidenced in his life. When God saves you, he changes you. You hate what you didn't hate before. You hate your sin. You hate your Rebellion, you hate your feelings and your shortcomings, and you love what you never loved before. You love the Bible, you love church. I love the place, O Lord, wherein your honor dwells, all earthly joys, um, all the joy of your abode, all earthly joy excels. You, you love it, you love people, you're changed, you love Jesus. Are you changed? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Zacchaeus is a living flesh and blood illustration of that truth. That Jesus saves and Jesus changes. The man that he was, a wealthy man, a wicked man, curious man. The man that he met, his identity, he was the son of man, his ministry, he came to seek and to save, and his priority, the loss. The man that he became, he was saved. Salvation has come to your house today, and he was changed, changed in his nature and in his practice. Amen.